scared of acorns? Excuse me? I like acorns. I don't like acorns hitting me. Clarification. Um, let me say this before we start. Uh, think about this image when it comes to relationships. And I want to encourage you, uh, as you're here this, for the rest of this weekend, with this illustration. It's this. How do you sharpen a knife? How do you sharpen a knife? With something else that's giving it friction. That's the only way a knife can get sharp. The only way a knife can get sharp, it will get dull with usage. The only way you will get a knife sharp is if you use a, a honing stone or some kind of steel or something that grates against it. That's what sharpens it. And in a similar way, your life, as you go through life, you will get dull if you do not have relationships where you have people in your life who grate you and ask you good questions and take interest in you and walk with you. And the same thing for you to do that with someone else. So I want to encourage you to find someone. If you're a freshman, if, you're, this, if they're, you're just getting rolling in this whole thing, connect with someone here this weekend with that in mind to try and build relationships that will sharpen you, that will, that will help you to grow. Because listen, there are many things you can do by yourself, but being a Christian is not one of those things. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. You need other people. Most of the New Testament cannot be achieved in isolation. You can't do it. You can't, be, you can't be what you were called to be by God in isolation. Most of what God calls you to is in, involves community. It involves relationships, real relationships, not, not surface-level relationships, real, meaningful relationships where you're honest with other people and they're honest with you and you grow together. So I just want to put that out there. I gave you time to get the Acts chapter 10 sword drill. We're going to read We're going to read the whole chapter, all right? This is God's word. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean. Do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, 
While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. As for the word that He sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, 
Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we hear the word, your spirit would fall upon us. That you would give us understanding, that you would give us faith that you would spark repentance in our hearts so that we will be more and more conformed to your likeness and so that we may become more and more the kind of community that you meant for us to be. So we pray for your help. We pray for your blessing. We pray for your spirit's ministry as I preach your word. We pray that you would uh, do a great work in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a podcast that's called uh, This American Life. And this podcast I listen to, uh, it's great. There are lots of great stories uh, on this podcast. But one of the stories I recently heard was a story about a man named Ryan who's blind. And in this story, they, they follow Ryan uh, who, who's in business and he's traveling on business. And when Ryan, being blind, when Ryan gets to a particular place, what he typically does is he goes into his hotel room and he finds the phone and he calls his wife to let his wife know that he landed and made it safely. So on this trip, Ryan gets to his hotel and he gets in the room and he starts going over to the bedstand beside the bed to get the phone. And when he gets over there, there's no phone. So he makes his way around the bed and goes to the other side to that nightstand and there's no phone which is strange so he begins to feel along the walls to try and make his way around to figure out where in the world this phone is he's looking around he's trying to figure it out but he winds up frustrated and he ends up going to bed because he can't find the phone early in the morning he's awakened by the sound of a ringing telephone He's groggy, but he makes his way to the sound of the phone and he answers it and it's his wife and she finds out that he's, he's okay and he lets her know he couldn't find the phone and everything. And he has a conversation with her and then after the conversation, he hangs up and he turns around to go back to the bed, but there's a wall there. And now he's feeling around and he's stuck. He can't, he can't get out. He can't figure out how in the world he got in, but he can't figure out how to get out. And as, the, as, as Ryan is quoted in a story, he describes it. He says, it's funny and it's also sort of terrifying. He keeps touching the wall thinking maybe this time it'll go away. But when he goes to the left, there's another wall now. And he ends up saying this. He says, I'm a grown man and I'm lost in a hotel room. <laughs> so he starts wiping down the wall again and he eventually learns that there's a part of the room that he hadn't discovered on the previous night. And this is how Ryan sums up this little episode in his own words. He says this, he says, this is the problem. When you're blind, you get a picture in your mind. And if you get it wrong, you just live inside the mistake. If you get the picture in your mind wrong, you just live inside the mistake when you're blind. As they're wrapping up the story, uh, they, they tell of another episode where Ryan is in another hotel room and he can't figure out how to get out of the hotel room. He's stuck again. And in many ways, this story about Ryan is a parable 
of the way that you and I often live our lives. Many individuals and many communities experience a sort of cultural blindness. We get this picture in our minds of the way that things ought to be. We get this picture in our minds of the way that relationships ought to go and the way that our local churches ought to look and the way that our campus ministry should, should look. But here's the thing. We often get the wrong picture in our minds and we get stuck inside of this mistake. We often find it difficult to get outside of our little cultural rooms. We find it difficult to get out of our assumptions and the, and the way that we think people are and the way that we think things ought to be. And so it's in these times that we need to lock in with God's help that is available to us in his word. We need to learn how to experience and embrace what is beyond our, our own walls. But it's going to take something significant. It's going to take something significant. And that's why this evening we are going to consider the topic of the conversion to cross-cultural ministry, all right? Cross-cultural community building. Because here's the deal. Even those of you who consider yourselves to be the most accepting and open-minded, even you struggle when it comes to this idea of getting outside of your own little cultural room, getting outside of your own world of experience. And so, if you're new to the Christian faith or if you've never really pulled out the shovel to dig in with the Christian faith, one of the things that you need to know about the Christian faith is that one of the core components of the Christian faith is conversion. Conversion. Where there is a radical transformation that God does in your heart that enables you to see and embrace Jesus. It's God's work. You will never look for Him unless He's first looking for you. You will never see Him until He first sees you. You will never move toward Him unless He moves toward you first. And when He moves toward you and He does that work in your heart, and all of a sudden the scales fall from your eye, all of a sudden your, eye, your vision is opened up and you see Christ, you see Him as irresistible and you embrace Him in faith. Here's the main idea I want you to walk away with tonight. If you have experienced this kind of conversion, this conversion through faith in Christ, if God has worked in your heart and he's opened up your heart to see Jesus and to embrace him, then that demands that you experience another sort of conversion where you see the other and you embrace them as well. If you have been converted by the gospel, by God, in his message of grace, it demands that you experience the other conversion where your heart is opened up and enlarged once again so that you can embrace the other. And what I mean when I say the other is anyone who's not like you, anyone who's different from you, anyone that you would be tempted to move away from because you just don't see how you fit. The other can be uh, racial, it can be ethnic, <clears throat> It can be those who have uh, physical handicaps and you, you lean away from them because that's just a different world to you. Like you, you're not, you don't even know how you'd begin to have a relationship with someone like that, right? It could be people who do not share your faith, who do not share your commitments or your values. 
in our culture, that could be gay people. People who just don't share our Christian outlook on life. They could be very opposed. But there's a conversion that needs to happen in our hearts where we are able to simultaneously disagree with people and love them. Where we're simultaneously able to, to say, I have serious problems with, with the way that you think about the world. But I see you as a person and I want to care for you and care about you. And our hope is that we will be a demonstration, that we will be a witness of the love of Jesus. If Jesus only loved the people that agreed with him and shared his sensibilities, we'd all be lost. Because when he found all of us, he finds us all wayward. He's the shepherd who goes after lost sheep. If Jesus only related with people who were the same as him, there would be no one for him to relate to except the Father and the Spirit. Do you realize that? So Jesus charts this, this, this very uh, countercultural course for us. You see him, for example, in John 4, talking to the woman at the well. And his disciples come back from getting food and they're like, yeah, Jesus. So they're like, what's he doing? He's not supposed to be talking to a woman. He's not to be supposed to be talking to a Samaritan. And she's a Samaritan and a woman. What is it? And Jesus knows what's going on. He's like, what? That's the Russ Whitfield International Translation. And Jesus said to him, he's like, what? And they're like, uh, nothing. <laughs> the Syrophoenician woman. What? There are all these different kinds of people that Jesus draws near to. Who's his strongest challenge issued to? The religious people who had grown up in it, who had always, who had always believed Jewish orthodoxy. Those who had read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. Those who had invited John Calvin into their hearts. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Um, do you see what I'm saying? Jesus always had his stiffest challenge to those who were living and growing up in the religious world. And he charted this course of relating to the other differently. So that's, that's the main idea that I want to communicate this, this evening. And so our, here are our two points. How do you experience this conversion? You need to see your own heart and you need to see the heart of God. Those are our two points. You need to see your own heart. And you need to see the heart of God. So let's start with our first point. Seeing your own heart. Now here's the context of our verse. We talked about Pentecost this morning. We talked about this, this massive conversion of all these people. 3,000 people on this day. The gospel goes out to people in their native languages. But one of the things that you notice in that text is that everyone in that passage was Jewish. That's important for you to recognize. Because even though it had gone outside of their little world, it had gone to the diaspora, those Jews who were scattered and those who were assimilating or converting to Judaism. There were people from other uh, ethnicities who had converted to Judaism. And so it's all of these people who had come in uh, for, for the festival. And they were in town uh, for Pentecost, Passover, all that stuff, right? And so they're different but it's not the full extent of difference, all right? And so what happens is the gospel's continually preached throughout the book of Acts. Christians are doing their thing, right? But what you have to appreciate is that all of the ministry that they were doing, all of, of the uh, preaching that they were doing, it was all happening within their motherland. It was all happening within Jerusalem and Judea, all right? 
But there's a turning point. And this is the turning point. The turning point is when Stephen, the deacon, is martyred in Acts chapter 7. You see, check it out. They had worn... A, so you know how like, you guys went hiking on the trails? Alright? There's a trail there because that is a well-worn path. Many people have traveled all the time. People don't go busting off through the woods. They, they take the trail, right? But here's the deal. Some of y'all do, alright? Because you want to get bit by a snake, alright? Um, here's the deal. We tend to wear a groove in well-worn, well-trafficked uh, relationships and, and, and we spend time around the same people. They had worn a groove in their own hometown and they were stuck in their own town, in, the own, in their own place where people were like them, where people thought like they did. And so what it takes, God is so committed to seeing them get outside because remember his vision was Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, all right? In Jerusalem, yes, Jerusalem, that's hometown. And it's, and in Judea, all right, that's still our region, all right, that, that, that's great, that's great. And Samaria, they're like, what? Samaria? And then he says, to the other most parts of the earth. Everywhere. You're going to the ends of the earth. So they had done Jerusalem. They had done Judea. But they were stuck. They hadn't gone outside of that yet. So God is so committed to seeing his church take the gospel cross-culturally that he sends persecution on them in order to scatter them. <coughs> Stephen is martyred. And when Stephen is martyred, when he is killed, when he is stoned... All of the disciples, they, they get out of there. They roll out. They get out of town. They're, they're like, we got to get up out of here. They're stoning folks, all right? So they get out. But here's what happens. God always scatters us to gather us. And he gathers us to scatter us. It's mission. It's welcome. It's inclusion. It's that breathing in and the exhalation. That's what he does with his community. Why do you gather at RUF? So that you can scatter out into the campus. And then you scatter out into the campus to gather more people back in RUF. And you gather in RUF so that you will be scattered out. You come in, you hear the gospel, you go back out with the gospel, you love people. You come back in, you have your love strengthened, you have your relationships built, and you go back out. You see that? That's what God's doing with the church. So they scatter. And the first thing that you see happen right after the martyrdom of Stephen is Philip is going out and he comes to Samaria. And he starts preaching the gospel in Samaria. And the Samaritans come to faith. And he's like, this is crazy. The Samaritans are even coming to faith. And what we're going to see are four conversions. Four conversions that show you the extent of the gospel. First, it's the Samaritans, all right? And then, after this, it tells us this Philip is going down the road. And the Spirit tells him, go over and run beside that chariot. It tells us that there's an Ethiopian eunuch, a black African, all right? Ethiopia at this time is sub-Saharan, all right? It's Africa. This is a black African. He is a high-up official for Queen Candace in Ethiopia. And he runs up inside a charity. He's like, you know what you're reading? You want someone to explain it to you? Now, the Ethiopian eunuch could have been like, look, I didn't get this far fooling with people who don't have their own chariot, all right? <laughs> right, because you had to have money at the time. He had to have money to have an Isaiah scroll. He had to have money to have his chariot. But he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip runs up beside him, 
and he wants explanation. He explains the gospel to him and he comes to faith. So we have Samaritan converted. We have a black African converted. And then the next conversion after that, Osama bin Paul. He is the greatest persecutor of the church. He was killing Christians and endorsing it and, and proliferating the persecution of Christians. But God confronts him on the road and he converts him. He comes to faith. He, becomes, he goes from the greatest enemy to the greatest advocate of the Christian faith. Samaritan, check. Black African, check. Greatest possible enemy of the Christian faith, check. Now, what we see in our passage for today is the fourth conversion. A man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion. He's a man of power. He's a man of authority. He, he's a man who is a Gentile. A Greek. So what we're seeing is this is the first time the gospel is going into a Gentile household. But here's what I want y'all to see. I want y'all to see this. Commentators recognize those four major conversions. The Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, and then Cornelius. But what I want to suggest to you is that there is a fifth conversion. And it's Peter. It's not a conversion to Jesus. It's a different kind of conversion. It's a conversion in which he sees how expansive the gospel is and just who it is that is included in the gospel. He's seeing how deep the demands of gospel transformation are for God's community, for God's people. He's seeing the extent of God's mission. It's one thing to say, yeah, yeah, God loves everybody. But then when everybody starts getting filled in and it's all the people that you think should be excluded, he's like... It, it, it doesn't compute. God has to do something radical in his life, all right? So there are, there are plenty of scholars who say that this is the most important section in the book of Acts, this series of conversions that ultimately winds up in, in the gospel going to the ends of the earth, all right? So one of the things I want you to appreciate about Cornelius as we've, as we've been reading about him is that he responds to the little information that he has, all right? You may be working through questions and doubts about the Christian faith, but Cornelius is a good example to you of someone who tries to wrestle with the data that they have right now. They try to deal with what they have. And that's what Cornelius does. During the daily prayer times for the Jewish people, Cornelius has this divine experience, letting him know that God has heard his prayers and God sends him to Peter. All right, he, sent, he sends him, he, he creates this connection. But check it out. This is what I want you to see. This is so powerful. It's so beautiful. And it's this. At the same time that God's working in the life of Cornelius to put him into connection with Peter, God's working in the life of Peter to bring him into connection with Cornelius. Do you see God is working in each of their lives in order to bring them together, to get them around the dinner table, to get them fellowshipping over the gospel? And I would suggest to you that God has never stopped doing that. Could it be that the work that God is doing in your life is meant to bring you into relationship with the other? Meant to bring you into relationship with people who are not like you so that you can fellowship with them over the gospel so that something new can begin to crop up in your community. I would suggest that that's exactly what God is continuing to do in our lives today. What God is doing in your life is part of his bigger plan to reconcile all peoples to himself and to one another. That's what God is doing in the world. He wants to get you in connection with other people. This is the fifth conversion. 
the fourth and the fifth, Cornelius is going to be converted to faith in Christ. He's going to experience that renewal. When the Spirit is poured out, his heart's going to be open. He's going to embrace Jesus by faith. But then there's a fifth conversion that we're going to see. Keep your eyes on Peter and what happens with him. That's what we're turning to now. Peter is, he's going up to pray during the time of prayer, right? And he's hungry. (laughs) He's waiting on lunch to be prepared. But as he goes up and he starts to pray, it tells us that Peter fell into a trance. All right? Now, he has this vision. He has this supernatural experience. And there is this sheet that is let down out of heaven. And it has all these different kinds of animals on it. And, and, and Peter hears these words coming to him. It's, it's my theme verse. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. This is like, this is, this is beautiful. This is one of those passages. That, there aren't very many passages, but this is one of those passages that makes me question sometimes whether the Bible's true. Because Peter sees bacon coming down out of heaven, and he says, no, I can't believe. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But for him, he was raised all of his life to see certain foods as unclean and certain foods as clean. For Peter, though, this wasn't just a dietary uh, decision. It was a moral issue for him. Certain foods made you morally unclean, and other foods were what kept you morally clean. That was his conviction. And so this voice comes and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, absolutely not. I have remained clean. I've never eaten anything unclean in my whole life. And the voice comes back and says, do not call unclean what God has called clean. And then here's what I want you to see. In the text, it tells us that this happened three times. Three times. He was so convinced. He was so set in his ways. He was so sure that he was right that he argued with a voice from heaven. That's crazy. Picture it. Sheet comes down. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Never, I've never eaten anything unclean. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Never, I've never eaten anything unclean. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. I said no. Do not call unclean what God has called clean. This happened three times and then the sheet is taken up. And then all of a sudden, ding dong, there's a knock at the door. Who is it? It's the posse of Cornelius. And as soon as they come, Peter's thinking on what's just happened. He's like, what in the world just happened here? And as that happened, the doorbell rings. These people from Cornelius show up and then the spirit speaks to him and says, go with them because I have sent them. He's like, all right. He goes. And he takes this journey with them. He invites them in first. That's the first major thing, right? He invites them into his home. That's a big deal because to invite a Gentile in your home as a Jew was to render you unclean. But God has changed things up. All right? God has changed things up. A lot of people like to say that the Bible's contradictory on these things, right? Uh, Oh, yeah, shellfish. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? Your Bible's dumb, right? Here's the deal. If I'm walking with my kids and we walk up to the corner and there's traffic on the street, I'm going to say to them, stop. Don't cross the road. Because ultimately, I want them to make it across. All right? 
for me to tell them no, and then when the light turns and the walk sign comes up, and then say, okay, now walk. It's not contradictory. It's part of a journey. It's part of a bigger story. God issues these, these laws. He gives them these requirements about how to organize the community of faith. But when Jesus comes, the light changes, and now it's time to take the next leg of the journey. All right? The moral law of God is not overturned, but the ceremonial law and the uh, political laws that govern Israel as a nation, those things have come to their fulfillment in Jesus. It's, it's, that's, not, that's not continuing anymore. The moral law of Jesus is. But something is changing here because Jesus has come. I want to I highlight this fact. When that food came down, Peter's reaction would have been visceral, like, like gag reflex, all right? Kind of like this one time I took a trip. I went on a trip to a foreign land, and my hosts, they were fantastic, and they wanted to treat me the best they could. I mean, hospitality was a virtue for them. And so they took me out to this really great place, and we ate a different kind of food I've never eaten before. But at one point in the dinner, um, there was this stack. It looked like chocolate jello cubes. And I was like, I was like, all right, chocolate pudding, all right. They, they, I mean, I was fired up. And then when they were about to, they were about to serve it, I was like, um, what, what is that? Uh, and the translator said, oh, it, it's the blood. It's, I said, excuse me? And she said, it's, it's duck blood. I was like, oh, 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 oh. I was like, <laughs> like, you know, the gag reflex. I was just thinking about that. That's what's going through Peter's mind. As this sheet comes down, he's, it's this visceral kind of, ooh, I can't even think about that. Never. No way. But here's the lesson that he's about to learn. The main point for which God brought that sheet down and revealed all these animals that he had, he had seen as unclean. And he experiences this visceral reaction because God was showing him that that's actually, that's actually the response of his heart to people who are different from him. His heart has a visceral reaction to people who are different from him, people who are not like him, people who don't share his values or his commitments of faith. That's actually a statement on Peter's heart. And it's actually a statement on our hearts. Before you light Peter up, you have to ask yourself the question, am I like him? And the answer is yes. And so am I. We all have people that we're repulsed by in our hearts that we, have, we can't even imagine sharing life with them. That's what this, this story is showing us. It's the same thing with regard to the people that is happening in his heart. What he feels about that food and how he reacts to it is really a statement about how he views people. And it challenges us to think about how our hearts respond to other people. How we respond to people that we consider to be culturally inferior because of the clothes that they wear, because of their customs, because of the music that they listen to. We automatically make assumptions and we're kind of like condescending and our hearts are repulsed by them. Our hearts don't react like the heart of Jesus does, right? The, the people that you see Jesus most fired up about are the people who, who were self-righteous and thought they had their act together. It wasn't for the people who were blasted by their own sin. It wasn't Jesus... Jesus didn't express his greatest anger toward those who were really messed up sinners who knew it deep down in their hearts. His greatest frustration came with those who didn't think they needed a savior. 
His greatest frustration was with those who didn't think they needed grace. They thought that they were in good standing with God based upon their own moral performance. And those are the people that really burned Jesus up. And he used to give his most scorching words to them. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. Those are the kinds of things he said to sinners. But what does he say to other people? They're caught in their sin. And he says to the woman at the well in Samaria, he speaks the truth to her about her sin. But then he invites her into redemption. You see, what I'm suggesting here is not that we endorse everything that goes on in every different kind of culture. When the gospel comes in to any culture, your culture included, my culture included, the gospel comes into all different kinds of cultures and it affirms certain things and it challenges certain things. What we have to do is we have to let the gospel challenge our culture and humble us and transform us, but we need to get more practiced and seeing the way that the gospel affirms other things in other people's cultures. And once we build relationships, then we can begin to dialogue about how the gospel challenges their culture too. Remember the knife being sharpened. But that's once real relationships are in place. So this is going on. Peter, like others, thought that the way in which God would use Israel toward the nations was through the nations assimilating to Jewish culture. See, here's the deal. Peter had this repulsion to them, right? But Peter also knew that God's plan with Israel was always that the nations would come in. Israel was to be a light to the nations, y'all, all right? But Peter thought that the way in which Israel was to be a light to the nations was by the nations assimilating to Jewish customs and Jewish standards in order to be accepted by God. But here's what we see in this passage. The Gentiles did not need to assimilate to Jewish culture in order to be received by God. And that means that you and I have to be careful that we don't require that people assimilate to our culture before they can know God. Because here's the deal. We all wrap the Christian faith in our own cultural concerns, in our own cultural expressions. And we have to be discerning about how we identify the difference between what is orthodoxy and what is the essence of our faith and what are our cultural particular around the faith, right? What's, what's my cultural particular around the faith? It's, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like many things, right? There, there is more than one way to do it. But at the end of the day, what's important is that you're about the core thing. For example, here's an example, right? Community is a Christian value. It's a virtue, right? It's something that God has envisioned for the church. But there are many different ways to do community. If you were in a tribal community in Africa, community would look different. Matter of fact, I have some friends uh, who are missionaries in Africa. And one of the things they recognize is in the tribal community, no one held their own possessions in that tribal community. Whatever someone had, the other was welcome to. And that's the way they operated. All right. Now, that way of doing community in our context, it doesn't have to look like that, right? It looks different. Maybe we do men's and women's groups at my church. Maybe this church does co-ed groups in community, right? Like maybe we express our value for mission by serving at the local orphanage. Maybe this church expresses its value for mission by uh, 
by serving uh, the local uh, homeless shelter, right? There are many ways to express the different virtues that we're called to. The main thing is that we try to identify and understand the things that are, are cultural about the expression of our faith and try to be open-hearted, big-hearted to see if there are other ways that this can be expressed through other cultures. The main point is this. You have to be careful that you don't force people to assimilate to your culture before they can come to Jesus. You're creating a barrier if you say you must become like my culture before you can come to Jesus. And that's what the Jews get lit up for. And that's what ultimately gets overturned at, in Acts 15. They're wondering if they need to impose these Jewish restrictions on the Gentiles. And it's like, no, just keep preaching the gospel to them and tell them to refrain from meat sacrificed to idols, right? Which wasn't a particular cultural thing. It was a mission thing. Y'all get the point I'm making? It's, it's self-awareness about how your culture affects the expression of your faith. But there's something important that we also should notice when Peter arrives at the home of Cornelius. When Peter gets to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius bows down and worships Peter. And what does Peter do? Yeah, I am awesome, huh? Bring it on. No. He tells him to rise up. And what we see here is that no, no one people group should be so put down beneath the others that they're not dignified. And no one group should be so elevated above the others that they're put in an idolatrous position. I like how one commentator put it. He says, Peter refused to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god, and he refused to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Ultimately, Cornelius didn't want to just be tolerated. He wanted to be healed. He wanted to be welcomed. He wanted to be forgiven and transformed, and he was, by God's grace. But where does this, where does this come from? Where does this change happen? How do our hearts change? How are we converted? How can your heart experience this second kind of conversion? I'm using this loosely, y'all. There's one conversion, and that's conversion to Jesus. I'm using this change of heart in another, a looser way. When I talk about having your heart changed, where you are, you are given a greater capacity to embrace the other. How does that conversion happen? Second point, you need to see the heart of God. All right? Now, here's the deal. The turning point in this text is Peter's confession in verses 34 through 35 when he says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Peter's beginning to see the heart of God in a whole new light. He says, now I'm starting to see that God shows no partiality. What did he think before God shows partiality? God favors some people. God favors some cultures. God, God has some favorite ethnicities. And it's me. That's what Peter thought. It seems that the Lord is beginning to connect the dots for Peter. And I can't help but think that in this moment, I'm taking some, I'm taking some, there's a spider web! Yeah. <laughs> I don't like spiders though. All right. <laughs> All critters of our God and King. All right. I can't help but think this. As all of this is going on and Peter's biases are being challenged and his prejudice is being challenged and his cultural idolatry is being challenged. As he begins to see that God's message to him is that this is the repulsion of your heart toward the Gentiles. That all of a sudden what marks his conversion is this remembrance of how God looked at him. I can't help but think that Peter remembered when the Lord held his dirty feet 
in his hand and cleansed him. I can't help but think that Peter remembered when he showed how vile he was in denying the Lord, and yet Jesus moves toward him and reconciles him. I can't help but think this. The main thing that converts the heart of Peter to help him embrace those he formerly repulsed was the fact that God had every reason to be repulsed by him and yet embraced him. It was the gospel that changed him. The gospel says this, our sin makes us so repulsive to a holy God. But what we see in the heart of God expressed through the incarnation, expressed through the life of Jesus and his ministry, expressed, expressed through his death and his resurrection is that God's answer to our deplorable and despicable situation is to do everything that is necessary in order to clean us and embrace us. And if God has embraced you, then you are called as a witness to his love to embrace others, to love them with gospel love, to move toward them with a reconciling heart. Do you see this? This is the transformation that he's calling for. God could have had that visceral reaction to Peter in his holiness, but in Jesus you see God's embrace of the sinner and his commitment to make him clean. If, here's the deal. If God can pronounce you clean by grace through faith in Christ, then he can pronounce anyone clean. But remember, God isn't zapping and microwaving the world. He has chosen means. And the means, the primary means by which God has chosen to accomplish his work in the world is his church. And until we wake up to this beautiful possibility our witness, our ministry will be blunted in its effect. We want to maximize our potential. Here's what we want to see. We want to see diversity. But diversity alone is not big enough goal. All right? We want doxological diversity. Y'all know what doxology is, right? Doxa is the Greek word for glory. When you sing the doxology, it's glorifying God. All right? To be doxological is for something to be aimed at glorifying God or something to be born out of a concern for the glory of God. There's a difference between mere diversity and doxological diversity. Doxological diversity is about uniting with people who are different from us with a goal toward seeing the glory of God in this relationship, the glory of God in our mutual transformation. And it's born out of our sense of the weightiness of God's glory. Think about who it is that calls you and sends you into the world. Jesus says, as you sent me, Father, so I have sent them. Think about the glory of Christ. He has sent you. He's weighty. He's, he is majestic. The same God who caused Isaiah to say, I'm unraveling before his glory. That's the God that's called you into the world on a redemptive mission to share his love, his grace, his gospel. We do not forsake the central truths of our faith for the sake of trying to relate to someone else. What I'm saying is that the central realities of our faith are the exact things that compel us and propel us out into those relationships. Sure, some, some people won't want to have anything to do with you. But here's the truth. You didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And he didn't give up on you. He pursued you in love. 
Do you see this is a radically different way of thinking about your life and your spirituality and your sanctification? All right? Part of your sanctification involves you relating with people who grate you, who are different from you, who frustrate you, who challenge you. That's how we grow in likeness to Jesus. We're good at applying God's acceptance and God's grace to ourselves, but we need to get better at applying that to other people, inviting other people in, communicating God's welcome. Listen, y'all, this is all about the gospel. This is not about being politically correct, as I said earlier. This is about being Christologically conformed, made into the likeness of Jesus. That's what the Spirit is out to produce in your life. He comes into your life with that luggage, 33 years of the moral and ethical beauty of Jesus. He's moving in, and He's not going to quit until He gets your life beautified. It's going to be a lifelong thing. And one day He'll complete the job in glory. But until then, let's be that foretaste of the glorious love that will be shed abroad in the kingdom. We got the already... But there's a not yet aspect. So as we live in the tension, we got to lean into this. Let's be known for being the kind of people that even if our neighbors on campus disagree, they will say this place is better because they're here. Because those, I disagree with those Christians. I don't buy the way they think about sexuality. I don't buy the way that they think about uh, any number of matters. But they make this campus a better place. And if they were gone, I'd miss them. Not everyone's always going to think like that. Jesus says, if the world hates you, it hated me first. Some people are just going to hate you. But make it hard for them to hate you because you live such a beautiful life like Jesus. Jesus is not a mere example. Jesus is not a mere example. He's our Redeemer. If Jesus were only your example, He would show you what you ought to become but could never become. But Jesus is not only our example, He's our Redeemer. And because He's our Redeemer, there is the hope that we will be able to, to walk in the imitation of Christ by grace and the power of the Spirit. Alright? Y'all connecting with this? Y'all get what I'm saying here? Alright. Let's make this our prayer. Let's make this the center of our conversations as we go away from here. Here are the questions I want you to ask. What about this text challenges you? What challenges you? Be specific. What in this text, what do you need to change in your life as a result of hearing this passage? How does it challenge you? What in your life needs to change? Concretely, what specific things do you need to change? And then three, in this text, how do you see God's grace available to help you change? In this passage, how do you see God's grace available to help you change? That's critical. Don't go off merely trying to, to do better and try harder. We're transformed by grace. Prayer. Prayer, y'all. Prayer. One old school theologian said prayer does not us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. 
In other words, one of the most important things you can do is pray for your own soul and invite your friends who know you and love you to pray for you on these points. I believe that God will hear our prayers for grace to live up into this vision so that our witness will be beautified. Remember, God, Jesus has hitched his reputation to the way in which we love one another. The most powerful testimony to the truth of the Christian faith is the quality of our life together. Let's live together beautifully and create the kind of welcoming context where sinners can, can wander in and begin to hear about the good news of Jesus. Sinners of all stripes. Not just the sinners that, that you like. All stripes. RUF Alabama could be the beginning of a revival on that campus. If y'all catch this vision. All right? So let's pray that God would do this great work. Father, thank you for these students. I'm so grateful for your work in their lives. There's evidence of grace in their lives. And I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would humble them. Give them the grace of faith and repentance to move forward. To to long for your kingdom first above everything else. Help them to demonstrate the beauty of your kingdom values. Help them to be faithful to the gospel above all else. And I pray that you would bless them to see some of the fruit of this cross-cultural love in their midst. I pray for your grace and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone pull out your smartphone. Everyone have your smartphone? Who has the smartphone? You guys are actually retreating. I'm proud of you. <laughs> All right, there's a song that came out on the most recent Indelible Grace album called Heal Us. <laughs>